welcome to the National Kidney Foundation Life as a Nephrologist podcast. I am Sam Kent, your host for today, and a fellow in transplant nephrology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. We hope to bring you new perspectives and keep you abreast on the latest in nephrology. We have a special guest today, Dr. Dori Segev. Dr. Dori Segev is the Marjorie K. and Thomas Pozeski Professor in Surgery and Epidemiology and Associate Vice Chair of Surgery at the Johns Hopkins University. He is also the founder and director of uh, the Epidemiology Research Group in Organ Transplantation um, called ERGOT, the largest and most prolific group of its kind in the world. Dr. Segev was the first to demonstrate uh, the survival benefit of incompatible kidney transplantation across the United States and is responsible for the first HIV to HIV transplants in the United States. His NIH-funded research includes kidney exchange, desensitization, long-term donor risk, access to transplantation, expanding transplantation, including HIV-positive donors, geographic disparities, post-transplant outcomes, and the intersection between transplantation and gerontology. With a graduate degree in biostatistics, Dr. Segev focuses on novel statistical and mathematical methods uh, for stimulation or simulation of medical data, analysis of large heart healthcare data sets, and outcomes research. Dr. Segev is most inspired by his role as a mentor, having mentored over 100 graduate students, residents, and faculty, and is the only general surgeon in the U.S. funded by an INIH NIDDK mentoring grant. Dr. Sagev has recently concluded multiple studies that have looked at the immune response to COVID-19 vaccination in an especially vulnerable population, kidney transplant recipients. We will be discussing these pivotal studies and the direction going forward. Welcome, Dr. Sagev. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so you recruited a large number of kidney transplant recipients to understand vaccine response for these studies, despite being in the midst of multiple waves of the pandemic. I'm curious to know how you ended up achieving that. Yeah, that was probably one of the biggest challenges of ever doing this study. Um, you know, we've, we've enrolled about 8,000 people into a research study of vaccine immunogenicity without ever having met any of them in person, which is quite odd in terms of the usual approach to multi-center large clinical studies. Every single person who was involved in the study was recruited remotely, mostly through social media, um, some through things like MyChart Blasts at transplant centers across the United States, was interviewed remotely, filled out questionnaires remotely, and even obtained blood samples remotely. Um, as you say, when we started, it was December, which was the height of wave three, which was an important time to, to study vaccines because that's when vaccines came out. Um, and we knew that there would be questions about safety of the vaccines in transplant patients and questions about um, the immunogenicity of the vaccines. But for uh, the timing, it was very important for us to do this, but very dangerous for transplant patients to be going anywhere other than staying home and remaining, you know, socially distanced um, during that third wave. So, as I said, all of the interactions with participants were remote, and we even went as far as uh, finding 
these capillary blood collection devices that I called the mechanical leech, which is basically a thing that they could stick to their forearm. Um, they engaged a plunger, which the first time I used it, you know, I kind of winced, assuming that it would hurt. And I didn't feel anything, which also then <laughs> made me worry about whether it was working, but indeed it was working. Um, and when you push that plunger, um, a bunch of little micro needles would enter the skin and through capillary action would actually obtain about 200 microliters of blood, which is a ton of blood these days for what we're able to do, you know, with, uh, with micro assays. And so they would get that, we would send them those kits in the mail, they would receive it in the mail, they'd stay home, they would obtain their blood at the intervals that we needed for the study, throw it back in the mail, send that back to us and then we would get in we would be able to 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 test it for antibody responses and other things that we were looking at in the study and this really showed us you know there are implications of this for research obviously um it was one of the first times that we were in our institution allowed to use um really fully remote uh um uh, consenting processes in addition to obviously the typical fully remote um uh, interviews and questionnaires and things like that. Um, but it, it tells us that we can do studies across the country without having patients required to come to our center to obtain blood and things like that. And it also has like implications about, um, you know, high dimensional longitudinal monitoring of patients from the clinical perspective, right? Like if we are, if, this, if it's truly this easy to obtain the blood that we need to check whatever people need surveillance on clinically, you know, for people with chronic disease, such as transplant patients, but there are a ton of different patients with different chronic diseases that need surveillance. Like the, the implications of that are huge in how we would take care of patients going forward um, as well. Wow. Um, that's probably definitely going to be a model for future research. But on reviewing the studies um, that looked at vaccine response, it appears that only 17% of kidney transcend recipients had a detectable antibody response after one dose. Um, this number only increasing to a total of about 54% after two doses. Um, it is well known that transgender recipients have a suboptimal vaccine response in general, um, what could be the factors that could explain such a dismal response with regards to the COVID-19 vaccine? Obviously, it was very problematic. So first of all, very early on, we were able to show within a month of the vaccine rollout starting that the vaccines were safe for transplant recipients. And this was really important, obviously, because what it meant was that, you know, we could encourage transplant patients to get vaccinated, that the societies could put out society statements saying transplant patients should be vaccinated. And that's really, really important because we always worry about any um, immune activation in our patients leading to alloimmune activation and, for example, subclinical injury to the allograft or rejection or something like that, right? So it was really important to establish safety. But then shortly thereafter, we had several hundred people who had gotten the first dose. And when we compared them to immunocompetent people who had gotten the first dose, we found that in stark contrast to 100% of immunocompetent people with a first dose who had detectable antibody, 
which strengthened by dose two, but 100% of people in the big randomized trials had detectable antibody after one dose. Now only 17% of transplant patients getting that. That was really scary. And we were, we were able to report that in JAMA in March, very early on in the rollout and send a warning out there. Look, you may think you're developing strong immunity and protection, but you may not be, and it's really important for transplant patients to remain socially distanced, mask wearing, et cetera, et cetera. And we knew this back in March, and that's really important because otherwise, you know, we will probably talk about this a little bit, but we've correlated this with uh, breakthrough infection rates. Otherwise, we would have been seeing tons of breakthrough infections in transplant patients, but it was important to get the word out that there was a problem, right? Then, obviously, the, the natural follow-up is, okay, well, maybe two doses fixed everything. And two doses kind of fixed a little bit. Now, about half of transplant patients, we were able to, to detect an antibody response. But in general, it was a lower antibody response, even among that half who got antibodies. It was a lower antibody response than in immunocompetent people. And the other half didn't have antibodies. So still problematic for this population, even after full vaccination. And, you know, the timing of that report came right with, you know, the the CDC um, statement that vaccinated people were safe to, you know, sort of make their way around the world without wearing masks. And so then the entire country stopped wearing masks. And then the place became even more dangerous for transplant patients, yet we had this population. And we also, you know, I know we're talking about kidney transplant patients today. We also ran a parallel study in people with autoimmune diseases and other immunosuppressed people who were excluded from the randomized trials. And while the problem wasn't as stark in those populations, the problem was there in those populations as well. So now we have a ton of people running around thinking they're immune, CDC is telling them they can burn their masks and go run around and indoor parties with other, you know, with everybody else in this country. And that that was bad. And that was scary for immunosuppressed people. And, um, you know, we at least were able to really get a strong word out that transplant patients in particular, people taking immunosuppression medication, do not have the same kind of protection that people with normal immune systems have. You alluded to breakthrough infections. Um, you know, they're a big focus currently. You've also concluded a study on breakthrough infections in solid organ transplant recipients. I think you looked at nearly 18,000 fully vaccinated patients um, across 17 transplant centers. I mean, what was surprising to me was that it was, you know, the breakthrough infection rate was less than 1%. Only 0.5% had hospitalizations with the death rate being, you know, just about 0.07%. Um, you know, in comparison to the general population, it appears that the solid organ transplant recipients had, say, around an 80-fold higher risk, of course, of breakthrough infections and nearly 500-fold higher risk of breakthrough infection with associated hospitalization and death. So in addition to comparing vaccinated solid organ transplant recipients to the vaccinated general population, do you think it would be interesting to compare the vaccinated solid organ transplant recipients to the unvaccinated as a real measure of how effective these vaccines are in the population? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, as you say, when you compare 
vaccinated transplant patients to vaccinated people who are immunocompetent, the breakthrough infection rate is much, much higher. I mean, I have to say, you know, I've never seen anything in the literature that says one group is 485 times higher risk than another group. Usually, at most, we would see like 4.85 times higher risk. That's your JAMA paper right there. But when it's 485 times higher, then you know there's a major, major problem, right? So what really important conclusion is that transplant patients are not protected nearly as much as the general population. Now, remember that these are transplant patients who already since March have known that things are a little bit more dangerous out there, who are probably wearing masks, who are probably distancing, who are probably being as careful as they possibly can. I can't even imagine what it would look like if you took transplant patients, told them they were fine, didn't warn them about this and then let them run amok among the general population with a bunch of unmasked, unvaccinated people spewing virus any, everywhere. I mean, who knows what the breakthrough infection rates would be? It could have been a lot more devastating. Now, indeed, what's really interesting biologically is how much protection are they getting? So if you're a vaccinated person doing whatever it is you're doing, how protected are you compared to an unvaccinated transplant person doing whatever you're doing? The problem is that there is finding that comparison group is not easy because one, most transplant patients are now vaccinated. And you know when you look at breakthrough infections, you look at them in an era where you know, time-wise, like you're going to have to look at breakthrough infections in April, May, and June of 2021, because that's when you had enough transplant patients who were vaccinated to measure them. But then if you're going to look back at breakthrough infections in unvaccinated transplant patients, you have to look like, who knows, back to November or December when wave three was hitting very hard. And who knows what the real comparison, what, what an appropriate comparison group is today, given what we know, um, you know, has changed over time. And so I think we, we may never know. In a way, that's good, because in a way, it means that there aren't enough unvaccinated transplant patients to study that, which is good. Um, but in a way, it's bad, because then we don't really have the ability to quantify the, the, the science. I know there are a lot of questions currently about, you know, whether or not a third dose is warranted. I think it's making a lot of news. Your recent study looked at a small series of patients who got the third dose. A good proportion of those actually did develop antibodies or go from low to high titer antibodies. However, um, half still didn't develop an antibody response. I know there are more studies coming out from Europe, in particular France, um, looking at responses to the third dose. Um, showed similar results, but did show that the the BNT162B2 vaccine, in, in other words, the Pfizer vaccine, increases both SARS-CoV-2 specific humoral and cell responses in kidney transplant patients. I do wonder if checking antibodies is the primary measure of the immunogenicity of the vaccine in this case. And do you think, are there other measures that could be utilized to see if there is a durable response? Yeah, a few great questions there. Um, one is... This came up very early on. People said, oh, look, you know, 
Yeah, sure. Dose one, only 17% showed antibodies. Dose two, only 54% showed antibodies. But is that really problematic? We're not really sure if that's problematic because there may be a whole bunch of other things going on on the T cell side, you know, transplant patients. We can't tell if they're really less protected than non-transplant patients, right? Well, now we have 82-fold risk of breakthrough infection and 485-fold risk of breakthrough infection with hospitalization or death. That shows us that there really is, there is a clinical problem that is associated with these, these lower antibodies. Also remember that the mainstay of immunosuppression for transplant patients is actually not antibody inhibition, but is T cell inhibition. So in all likelihood, whatever is blunted in a transplant patient is going to be more likely that the T cell response is blunted than even the antibody response is blunted. So if we see the antibody response sucks, then I'm assuming also that there are going to be major problems on the T cell side as well. Um, there have been some very, very superficial type studies of the T cell response that have shown blunting but some T cell evidence of activity. But these have not gotten nearly to the depths of T cell immunology to really say much that is reliable about T cell response. And that's also hand in hand with the fact that there is no commercially available T cell assay. So I can't tell a transplant patient, you know, while you're at it, getting your antibodies drawn at whatever lab, and there are a bunch of them commercially available that can do that, that test, you should also get your T cell responses checked because that's not possible. And nobody really knows what any of these T cell assays correlate with protection. So sure, there's probably some T cell activity going on, but you know, clearly in the big general clinical picture, it is not nearly enough to protect the patients. I would guess, and I, you know, maybe this I'll be proved wrong. That's the beauty of science, is that I can guess things now, and then we will know in a few months for sure. And we are doing this study, we are NIH funded to look at the B cell, the T cell immunology, all of the deeper stuff that's going on. I would guess. At the end of the day, we will find that in most people, most transplant patients and other immunosuppressed people, the antibody response is in sync with the T cell and other immune responses. Now, again, there are some people who are on agents specifically inhibiting antibody activity you know, like rituximab or something like that. People who are on that, they're going to see a different response, obviously. But I think in most people, we're going to find that these are in sync. And then in somebody who's got off the chart antibody levels, they're going to have a decent T cell response. And somebody who's got non-detectable antibodies is going to have also a blunted T cell response and is going to be, you know, non-protected. And, you know, where the line is on the antibody test of what correlates with protection, we just don't know right now. That leads us to then the question of, okay, well then who should be getting boosters and what should we be doing with with all of this now i i do want to be very very clear that in my mind there are three types of boosters there are immunogenicity boosters for people who are immunosuppressed who have not yet achieved a good immune response there are 
you know, variant boosters that are specifically designed against different variants other than the wild type that the original vaccines were designed for. Those are, are not around yet. And then there are durability boosters, which there's a giant national conversation right now about durability boosting and, you know, in people who got vaccinated six months ago. And we wonder if the durability, you know, particularly with response to to Delta variant and other variants has waned. And for people, so a durability booster, I would say, is for somebody who had a good response initially, and then their response waned, and now they need an additional, you know, sort of a, a new priming priming event. Um, but for transplant patients and other immunosuppressed people, I'm talking about immunogenicity boosters. So we have studied this, as you said, and other people have studied this as well. It looks like the following. If you have a low positive antibody level and you go into a booster, you are going to then go to a high positive antibody level. So almost everybody that we've studied now who started low but positive then gets a very, very nice boost. So that's encouraging. That means that they just needed another priming uh, episode and, and they may be done. We can't tell them if they're done, but they may, they may be done. Of the people who start negative, you would expect, I expected to see almost nothing, but we actually, about a third of them and maybe slightly more in some of the other studies do convert from non-detectable antibodies to detectable either at the low positive or even the high positive level, which again tells us that something was going on in the immune system and that it was just a matter of getting enough you know, sort of priming events for for them to to start to to demonstrate antibody. The real question is, is that enough for everybody? Probably not. This will have to be personalized. There are some people who are in enough immunosuppression or different enough of a certain agent of immunosuppression that will probably need immunosuppression modulation in order to make you know, immunogenicity possible with these vaccines. There are probably going to be some people who never get a good immune response. And then those people will have to seek additional protective measures like maybe monoclonal antibodies or something like that. Um, and then there are going to be some people in whom just a simple third dose is going to be sufficient and there's not much more we need to do for them. We are now running an NIH-funded clinical trial that will come in two parts. One is a 200-patient Baltimore-based pilot study of third dose alone with antibody, but also very, very deep uh, uh, B-cell and T-cell immunology um, with some uh, colleagues at Mount Sinai and Emory, but also a lot of the Hopkins immunologists, um, translational basic scientists have come on board with this, and some really interesting work is going to be done there. That'll give us data on 200 people, very solid data collected in a very um, systematic way where we know the shot that they got. We know exactly when they got it. We have a lot of blood before, a lot of blood after. We can really study what's going on other than, you know, compared to these observational studies where, you know, we, what we get is what we get. Um, that will transition very quickly to a large multi-center national trial where not only will we be exploring third doses, but we will also be exploring things like immunosuppression reduction, things like heterologous versus homologous boosting 
and those sorts of things to better understand the safety of this. We're going to be very carefully monitoring the allografts. Remember early on, we talked about alloimmune activation as a risk of general immune activation with the vaccine dose, et cetera. And these are all going to be very carefully monitored. But I'm very excited that now we are doing this in an FDA-approved clinical trial setting where we can actually give people third doses and see what happens with them. Well, thank you, Dr. Saigav. Um, uh, well, to quote Dr. Fauci, who recently wrote to your team and you, I think, thank you for your steadfast dedication to keeping everyone healthy. Um, we're really looking forward to the results of your um, future studies and then also look forward to having you on the podcast again. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks again for having me on the podcast. And I look forward to an opportunity to share more findings with you.